Good day and welcome back to the podcast. It's Wednesday, 11th of September, 1946. In this slightly longer letter, Bet is very chatty, regaling us with all sorts of chit-chat from Nanchang, but also tells the tale of her seven-day holiday in the mountains at Kuling with Hank and several other staff. Let's get right to it and hear from Bet. Mrs. Betty Souter, Unra Regional Office, Nanchang, Changsi, 11th of September, 1946. Hello, hello, guess what? I nearly went to the pictures. After quite six months of abstention, I and 18 others clambered into the jeeps tonight and went off in high glee to the opening night of the movies. The only trouble was that the show decided not to open. Or, should I say... In fairness to the management, it was ordered not to open because the Generalissimo is likely to turn up in Nanchang at any moment. You can't see the connection? No, neither can I. But that makes no difference. However, we had a rough jeep ride to the other side of town in the glorious moonlight, which could be glimpsed occasionally between bumps and inspected the structures of the cinema, which was all abuzz with workmen putting silver paper on the supporting post in honour of the anticipated arrival of the Lord of the Land. And so, being deprived for yet another night of the previously matter-of-course enjoyment of a night at the flicks, I returned to my little corona to thump out in harsh type the secrets and the glory of this little old world of China, so far as the secrets and mysteries are permitted to be unfolded before my inquisitive eyes can never tell you much of this country, really, because I can never properly understand it or the ways of its people. The longer I am with them and amongst them, the more keenly I realise that I am just an outsider who cannot get far under the surface of things. But I shall tell you what I can. Nan Chang is really in a dither of excitement over the arrival of the Generalissimo. Of course, it is quite possible that he will not come here at all but we get used to sudden change of events like that, and no one gets disturbed about it anymore. As a matter of fact, Generalissimo has been going to arrive for quite seven or eight weeks now, and it may be that he's sending out the rumours to set false trails as to his whereabouts and give him safer passage in another direction. Nevertheless, Nan Chang takes the story in good faith and is putting up Chinese welcome signs along the roads bedecked with flags and paper flowers, stringing out the electric lights where available, painting the tree trunks white, cleaning up the gutters, closing the movies and hotel to all comers, and placing armed sentries in all the pillboxes along the Qiu-Chang-Nan-Chang road. UNRA personnel have held tickets of invitation to his reception, if and when he does arrive, and those tickets have been checked and rechecked, chopped and rechopped quite twice every week for the last six weeks. (laughs) Such fun. I do not know whether it has anything to do with the Generalissimo or not, psychologically or otherwise, but there was a murder of a policeman in this city last night, right outside the main provincial hospital, where the poor Bobby was on point duty. Knifed in the back. 
could not get him into the hospital quickly enough to save him. All policemen have been withdrawn from point duty today as a result, but it does not make much difference, for there are only about two trucks, four jeeps and three broken-down private cars in the city altogether. The policemen's duties, if any, are now being taken over by the local soldiery. No doubt the Generalissimo will send on his advance guard for his own protection and the general public will be able to look after their own welfare as usual. Talking of murders, dangers, etc., I am being quite serious when I say that civil strife seems to be getting nearer in China. I do not think that Changxi will be a centre of trouble, though it will catch the flame once it starts like the rest of the more conservative provinces. Reports coming in from the provinces where communist problems do exist all indicate increasing tension. UNRWA head office in Shanghai apparently admits the possibilities of a civil war too because all regional directors have been told to exercise caution and discretion and, in the event of trouble, to withdraw all personnel regardless of high ideals and motives which might impel us to remain and carry on the good work. UNRWA is supported in the relevant directives by SUNRA, the Chinese counterpart organisation, We have all been provided with Chinese police passes as well as a circular printed in Chinese and English requesting the observance of our safety since we have come here to help the Chinese nation. It is all quite disturbing, but I'm not personally afraid as I have great confidence in our director and staff here and also in our Chinese friends and co-workers here in Nanchang, which is probably even more important. Bandits are still holding up the buses on the main roads around here, though robberies have fallen off a bit since the armed sentries took to their little mud pillar boxes. In passing, I must say that I have never seen such youthful-looking, lackadaisical, badly-dressed and badly-equipped soldiers as these of the Chinese army. I often wonder if they are capable of forming a parade ground at all. Perhaps I would be surprised. I would have no faith in them at all. And the amazing part of it is that each and every one of them believe that the Chinese army alone saved the world from the Japs. They really do believe that and will tell you so with pride if you should pull them up as they struggle along the edge of the road, dragging their meagre equipment along over their shoulders on bamboo poles, fanning themselves as they trudge in the hemp sandals through the dust, sheltering from the sun under the usual sunshade. I'm not kidding. They mostly have fans and sunshades as part of their belongings, even if they have no rifle or pistol. To get onto a different subject, you may have heard that this crazy Chinese currency has jumped even higher, or should I say swollen, into a bigger and better bubble. When the bubble bursts, there will be fuel for the biggest bonfire ever known, consisting mostly of $1,000 bills. The present official rate is US $1 equals CNC, Chinese currency, 3350 That makes 1000 Chinese dollars equal to approximately 1 and 10 pence Australian. And they still do not make any bills at higher denomination than 1000 You're telling me it's crazy. I priced a set of China a few days ago, dinner set, 
and had to sit down quietly for 15 minutes to figure out what the salesman really meant when he said that the price was $1,500,000. Oh, but life is so difficult. It seems that the relaxation of price controls in USA has had the effect of increasing most prices here. It was the main cause, so I'm informed, of the rise in the exchange rate too. Prices are sky high anyway for imported goods such as tinned foods and European clothing or toilet goods and are rising on the local products. Please understand why I do not send all my friends cables on birthdays, anniversaries, etc. It costs the equivalent of 15 shillings per word. Actually, that is a reduction but I am informed that prices will be back to the higher level again any moment. On the mere personal side of my life in China, I must say that living conditions in Unra House at Nanchang are not so bad. I think that we have almost rat-proofed the house now, though the little beggars, I did say beggars, though I say that other word when they fight on the end of the bed at nights, are still rampant within. But we are now having ice cream for dinner every night. Marge says that it becomes monotonous. And we have received an issue of fruit juices, fruits, candies, chocolates, beer, toddies, toilet goods of many and essential kinds in our latest PX supplies. All the locals are strenuously asserting that the cooler weather should have started on the first of this month and life assumes a rosier hue. I am on page three and I haven't even started to tell you about my holiday in Kuling. I shall commence that episode by saying that I feel absolutely full of beans and on top of all the world after my week in the clouds, the cool, clean air. Having now assured you of the state of my health at the present time, I can start the tale of the hazardous journey to the mountaintops. On Saturday morning, the last day in the month of August, I was up betimes and did the final packing. Into one usual size jeep, Hank packed first the luggage for four persons, including cots, blankets, rations and personal effects, including the inevitable few cases of beer, and then Cyril Fazel, Indian, our economic analyst, my offsider, Charlotte Ferry, American public health nurse, and myself. He squeezed himself under the wheel, stepped on the accelerator, and we were on our way. We drove into Ku Chang in good time, made our way to the Chinese hotel, at which I first made my acquaintance with Chinese bugs and rats last April, and contacted Radolf Belford, Rudy, who was to go up to the mountain with us too. Rudy is a great hulking Aussie, rough as bags but good as gold, and the best company. He's a middle-aged man and a born entertainer. We were obviously in for a good time. Before starting up for the mountain, I really must mention that I have seen Unra used clothing in actual use, to wit, on one of the coolies who helps pump the vehicle ferry across the Sio River on the Ku Chang Road. I am perfectly, perfectly certain that the dark brown velour that George wears so proudly could only have belonged to T. Cha at that little kindergarten school across the way. He even wears it the way she used to, down at the front, up at the back style, remember? Sorry, other readers, that is a little family joke. Well, to continue, with Rudy, we prepared ourselves for the journey, 
by patronising the restaurant. And then we set out for the foot of the mountain, about 15 miles out by jeep from Ku Chang. Having arrived there, we went from one office to another and from that back to the other one and so on and so on. There were two officers offering conveyance in competition, so we found, until we had to be satisfied that there were no conveyances available whatsoever from either office that afternoon. Unless I tell you differently, you must always assume that there is sweltering heat while all these things are going on. This was no exception. No alternative but to return to Q Chang for the night. We went to the Methodist mission where they can usually accommodate us and they found cots for us for the night in spite of illness in the house and many other guests etc. I'm quite sure that no one slept in Q Chang that night. I lay and fanned myself until the dawn broke at which time we agreed to rise and get an early start for the mountain again. We got the early start all right but had to wait for a couple of hours until there were enough chairs and coolies to take us and our luggage aloft. As usual, the pale-faced foreigners had to pay through the nose. Instead of the usual four coolies to carry each chair, they insisted on six coolies for Char, Cyril, Hank and myself, and eight for the big Rudy, in spite of the fact that the fat old Chinese plutocrats only have four, also a mother with a couple of children and all her luggage. For our luggage, we had to have 15 additional coolies. After much chattering, jabbering, argument, inspection, passport production, police identification, etc., we were allowed to start. Luckily, there was a Chinese officer at hand who had served in Burma and who chummed up with Cyril during the hours of waiting and he made things a lot easier by dispensing with minute examination of luggage. He really was a big help in getting us on the way. I've never been lifted aloft in a sedan chair before. It is most peculiar, I can assure you. I don't think that I like it much. In fact, quite sure that I don't. But it is the only way to get up the mountain unless you want to walk. And somehow I didn't feel like taking the job on. You see, Kuling is 3,500 feet high and is reached in a climb of about four miles, which means, so I'm told, a climb at a grade of one in four to one in six. The look at the first flight of about 500 cobbled steps would have been quite enough to deter me. The sedan chair is itself made of cane, just like a basket chair without legs, and with a box seat lifting off in which you can put your small luggage. There are four poles from back and arms to hold up a canvas canopy, and if necessary, a canvas blind is put on one side to protect you from the sun. This nifty contraption is attached by a nail or two, some rope and some wire, and a few yards of faith two long bamboo poles which extend about six or seven feet out fore and aft. Two coolies stand between the shafts fore and two aft, not side by side of course, but one in front of the other. And they actually support the shafts with the inevitable bamboo pole on their shoulders, the pole being tied to the shafts with the same ingredients. And so the procession got on its way. The extra two coolies are there as substitutes 
and change with the others every so often. We started to climb. I started to feel apprehensive. I felt that my boys were not on a good team and something was amiss somewhere amongst them. Several times I imagined they might just jump from the shafts and have a go at each other. Forgetting poor Betty Mavis, who might easily have gone rolling over and over and over for a thousand feet or more, but they didn't, and Betty Mavis didn't either. There is no doubt about the agility of these coolies. They are just like mountain goats, never a false step. Every so often, the front boy would grunt at the others, and the bamboo pole would slip expertly onto the other's shoulder. Another kind of grunt would lead them all into a run-up a flight of steps, and yet another grunt would cause them to alter their rhythm so that the chair would stop bouncing up and down and would get on an even keel again. The track winds around and about the very edges of the mountain, and there are, of course, numerous hairpin bends, which the boys manoeuvre very well. At the hairpin bends, you can guess what happens? While the front coolies are on the second bend, the rear coolies are still on the first curve. That means that the chair and its open-mouth occupant hang out for a few long moments over the gaping chasms. I thought of mother and home, and then I just thought of mother and chuckled a bit. Picture me, mother dear. Would you have come with me on this mountain trail? But once you start out on such a journey, there's no turning back because there's no room to turn. There were several stops en route where the coolies could rest up and change places. Believe me, the passengers appreciated these little breaks too. On the upward journey, these were the only times that you could really appreciate the wonderful panoramic view, which was, of course, behind you all the way. From the sheer mountain face, you can just imagine, I'm sure, long and wide expanses of flat country, broken by irregular, widespread waterways, slate grey amongst the green paddy fields, and through the foreground, the muddy yellow of the Yangtze in a comparatively straight, broad line, extending right and left as far as the eye could see. The Yangtze was quite a different colour from the other canals and tributaries, always sluggish and dirty on the surface, but swift and often treacherous underneath. A few clouds hung lazily in the sunny blue sky, just to make the picture complete, and with the occasional gust of wind, would lift and get lost in the mountain peaks, as new white puffs formed lower down. As we climbed, not too slowly up the mountainside, we could notice the change in the air. Instead of damp, oppressive, musty air around us, it gradually became clear, clean, light and fresh. The midday sun kept the temperature up, but the humidity disappeared, and already we began to feel the benefit of the holiday. From the chair, we watched the streams coursing down the mountainside, the little waterfalls in the crevices, the dense green bushes, and the colourful, though mostly small, bush flowers. Some of the flowers I could recognise, such as the morning glory, calliopsis, shasta, and Easter daisies, all growing wild. For some few yards, I enjoyed the company of a passenger, 
a great black velvet butterfly, which paused for that little while on the arm of my chair. It was a beautiful creature, soft and shiny, with long golden antennae and golden markings on its heavy little body. There are far more butterflies in the bush of China mountains than we ever see at home. This one must have been king of them all. After about two and a half hours, we reached the famed mountain resort, achieving, in the last climb, no less than 1,000 steps. The coolies skimmed over those last thousand with just the same energy and skill displayed when we first set out. Guess I could not personally have completed the first 500 steps in a whole day, but that is just the difference between me and a Chinese mountain coolie. At the top of the mountain, we paused while the coolies put on their shirts before walking through the town itself. For the journey, they were clad in blue shorts, cotton pants, hempen sandals and wide coolie hats. To achieve proper dignity in the Generalissimo's mountain home, they donned white cotton jackets with high collars buttoned up the centre front. Into the town we bounced. It is a quaint town with cobbled narrow streets. Two of these narrow streets constitute the shop area. The vegetable market's been a little lower on the hill and further out of town. There are no rickshaws and, of course, no cars or other conveyances of like nature, no bicycles. In fact, one must walk everywhere in cooling or take a sedan chair if one is available. There is a usual summer population at cooling of about three or 4,000 people. In winter, there are less than 1,000, comprising only the caretakers of the homes of the wealthy, etc. Apparently, it is bitterly cold in winter and almost impossible to get supplies up the mountainside because of the slippery iced surface. The houses are set well apart along the narrow, steep roads, all of which are cobblestones. The Japs made a pretty thorough job of ruining the homes in 1938, leaving only empty stone shells of houses which have, in the intervening years, become overgrown with grasses and shrubs. For every habitable house, there must be three or four ruins. It's a great pity, for it must have been a really lovely place. The homes of the elite such as the Generalissimo, General Marshal and foreign diplomats and embassies, are mostly situated in Fairy Glen, the main residential street, down the centre of which tumbles a clear rippling stream, falling in little waterfalls under a series of arched bridges till it gets lost in the tall bush at the end of the street. This is China as we have read about it in the fairy tales. The cobble pathways down either side of the stream the bubbling water falling over rocks and pebbles, forming clear pools here and there, pretty stone arch bridges on which the long-gowned men or trousered women pause a moment to watch the running water. Brown-skinned, black-haired children clambering on the stones in the pools and Chinese sunshades bobbing amongst the trees beside the waterway. Just to complete the picture, a coolie comes into sight now and again, carrying his load in wicker baskets on bamboo pole and, to accentuate the atmosphere, the babble of Chinese tongues carries along the breezes, softly reminding you that this land belongs to China, and to China alone, and for always. Cooling is quiet and clean and fresh. You will have to come to China to really know just what that means. Sunra had obtained for our use a very nice house, 
with three bedrooms, a large living room, a dining room and a long wide veranda. I promptly decided to sleep out and most of the others likewise. Most of our time, I might say, was spent on that butte veranda. The house was a good 20 minutes walk from town, all uphill, on the return journey whichever way you came. Nevertheless, we did not stay in our own backyard all the time, even though it was pleasant enough there to justify it. We had several games of tennis on the town courts and we swam in the town swimming pool where the clear waters come down directly from the mountaintops and provide uncontaminated refreshment. We visited the Sunra-controlled hospital, Lushan Hospital, which I have mentioned in my reports, and danced on the verandas there one night. The manager of one of the banks, Mr Hung, entertained us at a Chinese luncheon one day, which, I must admit, was extra enjoyable after some of the efforts of the willing but not-so-good cooks at the house. Seems to me that the men of Unra make better cooks than the women, because most of our meals at the house were capably handled by Hank, Rudy or Keith. Yes, we had lots of fun with our housekeeping. This letter was started about 24 hours ago, and I regret to say that I have lost the continuity of it, but we'll now try to ramble on a little further It seems to have covered the cooling story pretty well, however. Altogether, we've stayed on the mountain for seven full days and were not too willing to come down again. While up there, some newcomers bought me fresh letters together with the not-so-surprising but still very exciting cable about our Jews' engagement. That called for a proper celebration and a dozen bottles of Shaoxingzhou red wine, were exhausted before we felt the good wishes had been properly wafted across space. I felt a very deep longing to be home that night. It was a still, quiet night with a large, bright moon. Everywhere was soft and quiet, and I wished I were at Wollstonecraft. But the early quietness of the night was shattered later. After I had settled down under the blanket and stopped my moon gazing across the pine tops, Suddenly, without any warning, a shaft of blue light flashed along the telephone wire and within an instant the thunder broke over the house. It was a dry storm and a noisy one. It lasted only five or ten minutes, but believe me, it was shattering. Life's unpredictable in China. So is the weather in Kuling. Last Monday morning, our chairs were waiting for us at 8am and reluctantly, we left house 147 to the next group of holiday makers. The journey down was delightful, in spite of the same hazards with coolies, narrow track and cliffs. It only took one and a half hours to make the descent because the boys ran and skipped most of the way. All of the way, the view lay ahead and it was fascinating. As we got lower and lower, the picture narrowed and in the narrowing, the details of the landscape became clearer into view. The morning was cool and clear, but we regretfully noticed the change of climate as we neared the foot of the mountain, back to the heat and sweat. But it was a lovely holiday. And so, my friends, I will leave you here. My usual jeep ride over rough roads brought me back to reality and employment much too quickly. But for that brief spell, I am most thankful. Cheers to you all. Hope you've enjoyed your jaunt with me to Kuling. Now that the chair ride is over, it wasn't so bad, now was it? Betty.
Production credits for this episode, produced and narrated by Warren Henry, the voice of Betty Souter by Helen Polkinghorne, and the featured tune from 1946, with Dinah Shaw on vocals and Spade Cooley and his orchestra, from the movie Annie Get Your Gun, Doin' What Comes Naturally. Never fuss with schools and books and learning. Still, we've gone from A to Z, doing what comes naturally. Doing what comes naturally. You don't have to know how to read or write when you're out with a feller in the pale moonlight. You don't have to look in a book to find what he thinks of the moon and what is on his mind. That comes naturally. That comes naturally. My uncle out in Texas can't even write his name. He signs his checks with X's and they cash them just the same. Grandpa Dick was always sick but never saw a doctor. He just died at 93 doing what comes naturally. Doing what comes naturally. Doing what comes naturally. Doing what comes naturally.